Let's bow and pray. Father, we bring a simple prayer before you, confessing we are dust like flowers that fade away, but we're rejoicing in the grace of our unchanging eternal God who has given us life and salvation through Jesus because of him, because of his grace. We know that one day we will be in your presence and see you face to face. We'll see you as you are. So our simple request is that today, in this place, in this moment, you would exalt your grace and your glory as we open your word. Speak to us, that we might see Christ and that our faith might be strengthened. Amen. Please open to Luke chapter 7 this morning. It's a joy, as always, to be with you on Sunday, to get to open up God's word and to study through the gospel of Luke together. Um, Some of you are not from Lawrence. You don't live in Lawrence. We're kind of a regional church. We have a lot of people who live out in the country and in some of the other towns, smaller towns surrounding Lawrence. But you're probably familiar with Lawrence, and you know that we have uh, some buildings here in this town that have names on them. Uh, For about four years, this church met at the Carnegie Building, which is named for Andrew Carnegie. He was uh, he made a lot of money in the steel industry, built a lot of railroads, and he was a, phil- a philanthropist. And I believe he built around 3,000 libraries. And so we had a, a library here in Lawrence. It's called the Carnegie Building. It's no longer the library, but it still stands. We also have on campus the Adams Alumni Center. You have Anschutz Library. We have these different significant buildings in our community that are named after uh, well-known leaders or named after the donors who funded those buildings to be built. Well, in Luke chapter 7, we meet a man who personally funded and built the most significant building in his city, the synagogue. There was one temple in Israel. It was in Jerusalem. That was the nation's capital. The, The temple was where the priests fulfilled their duties, where the sacrifices were offered, But many of the towns around Israel had a synagogue. It was a place where people would gather for weekly instruction from God's word, a place where they would gather for worship. And so it was really the the heartbeat of each little city was the synagogue. That's the place where people gathered. It was a very um, significant communal gathering place. But despite the fact that this man in Luke chapter 7 funded and built the synagogue, that's not what he's remembered for. In fact, we don't even know his name. It's not built in big, bold letters on the side of a building anywhere. What this man is remembered for is something else. He was remembered for his faith. Let's look at our text today. It's Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. It says that after he, speaking of Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, 
and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is a unique story, a significant story that we find in the gospel here. But it's not significant simply because of how Jesus heals. We've seen Jesus heal a number of people. He's done this a number of times. What's significant here is not necessarily how Jesus heals, but how this man believes. It is the faith that Jesus commends in verse 9 that is the focal point. That is really the punchline of this whole story where Jesus says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. That is the mic drop moment in this narrative. Jesus underscores this faith. He turns and he draws everyone's attention to it that was there that day. And he draws our attention to it as we read this account 2,000 years later. What is it that Jesus wants us to learn from this man's faith? Why is this story preserved here for us in the Gospel of Luke? Well, what I want to do this morning is draw out for us three descriptions of the kind of faith that Jesus commends. Three descriptions of the kind of faith that Jesus commends. And the first we find in verses 1 through 3. And at the risk of stating the obvious, Jesus commends faith in the right object. Faith in the right object. It is not just the mere possession of faith. It is not just something in him that, that he's a hopeful, optimistic person. It is the direction of this faith. It is the object of this faith. It is not just that he has faith. It is who his faith is in. Luke picks up the narrative following the conclusion of Jesus' preaching in chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain that we've been studying for the last two months. And the, the scene now is changing. He's no longer out in, in the countryside. He's now in the city of Capernaum. This town, Capernaum, was on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. It was the hometown for Peter and Andrew, his brother. It was the hometown for James and John, two other brothers. Both of them were involved in the fishing industry. That was the primary industry in this coastal town. And this city of Capernaum served as the home base for Jesus' ministry in the region of Galilee. This is where he would return to quite often. He's already done a number of miracles here and gained quite the reputation. In fact, if you flip back to chapter 4, verse 40, we find what it tells us that uh, following Jesus actually teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum, and casting out a demon there, he comes back to Simon's house. He heals um, Simon's mother-in-law. And it says in verse 40, When the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So Jesus is no stranger to Capernaum. And the people of Capernaum were no strangers to Jesus. In fact, a local centurion has heard about Jesus. A centurion was an officer in the Roman army, traditionally uh, having command over 100 men. That's why we have that title. Now, this man may have been uh, Roman by birth, but keep in mind that the, the Roman Empire was massive, and their needs for military included not just people that were natural born to Rome. There were, he could have been of a number of different nationalities, but he definitely would have been a Gentile. 
That's the key thing. There would have been no Jewish centurions. And if there were, they definitely would not have been stationed in Israel. So this man is a Gentile. He's a man of great means, a man of authority, a man with a lot of power, a man who is wealthy, a man who's a Gentile. But he's heard about Jesus, and this man is experiencing a crisis. Verse 2 says, the centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, a servant who was highly valued by him. The Gospel of Matthew tells us this man was actually paralyzed. And this condition, the way that Luke describes it, Luke, who's a doctor, says he's near death. If nothing changes, it's over. This man is not going to just get better with a little more time. He is on death's door. It is a terminal illness. But this servant is highly valued by the centurion. He is esteemed. He is held in honor. He's more than just the employee of the month. It's not just that this man was financially useful. The way this is worded indicates that there's a personal connection. The centurion cares deeply about this servant who is on death's door. And we're already starting to see something of this man's character here. That he doesn't just use people. He cares for them. And that's why he's in this dilemma, because it's hard to watch people that we love suffer. It's even harder to say goodbye. And that's exactly what the centurion is facing, the prospect of death for this servant of his that he deeply cares for. And like everyone else in Capernaum, this man had heard about Jesus. So he sends some of the elders of the Jews to ask for help. These elders of the Jews would have been the local leaders in the community, trusted men that were looked to for counsel, to give direction, to render judgment in the gate. And so he asks some of them to go ask Jesus for help. Now, this is remarkable for a few reasons. I mean, think about this. This man is a Roman military officer. He is an occupier. He's part of the ruling class. Most people would have seen him as an oppressor. And he's asking for help from a subjugated people. That didn't happen every day. This man is also a Gentile. He's likely from a polytheistic background where they worshiped many different gods. And here he is crying out for help to the Messiah promised, anointed by Yahweh, the God of Israel. He hears about Jesus and seeks help from Jesus. And again, we're stating the obvious here that the faith Jesus commends is faith in the right object, but it needs to be said. This man had heard about Jesus. He had heard a message. He had heard a story. He had heard truth claims. He was presented with a declaration that Jesus had power over demons, power over disease, that he taught, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, with great authority. He'd even perhaps heard the claim that Jesus was God's Messiah, the fulfillment of promise, and he believed He believed what he heard, and he knew that the help he needed, the kind of help he needed, could only come from Jesus. This man could have afforded any doctor he wanted. But he cries out for help from Jesus. This is the kind of faith that Jesus commends, faith in the right object, faith in Christ, faith in the power of Christ, faith in the promises of Christ. There's a lot of people that have faith, a lot of people in our world today who have faith, many people in the room who have faith, but the question is, where is that faith looking to? 
What is your faith in? It's possible to have a misplaced faith, to have faith in yourself, to have faith in worldly resources and systems, faith in science, faith in humanity, faith in the false gods of pagan religion, faith in human wisdom and resourcefulness, faith in karma and horoscopes and the alignment of the stars, faith in fate or destiny, even faith in your own faith. That by somehow believing in your belief, you can somehow achieve and overcome. But it's not just faith that Jesus commends. It must be faith in the right object. What makes faith salvific, what makes faith effective is its object. And this man placed his faith in Jesus. He sent for help from Jesus. It's not enough to simply have faith. Faith must be rightly directed to Christ. So Jesus commends, first of all, faith in the right object. But secondly, Jesus commends faith that is humble. The faith that Jesus approves of and commends is profoundly humble. Look in verse 4. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. He sends these messengers to Jesus. And you might ask the question, why? Why didn't he just go ask Jesus? Well, we can sort of speculate. Maybe he's sensitive to Jew-Gentile tensions. You know, a a Roman soldier going and and asking for this help. It's kind of awkward because Jews and, and Gentiles don't usually like each other, and Jews really hated the Romans. He thought, well, maybe the Jewish brothers will have better luck, you know, asking him for help. Maybe he's aware that contact with Gentiles could potentially make a Jew unclean, and he knew this rabbi would not want to become unclean, so maybe it's best to send some messengers. Maybe he just didn't want to leave his servant's side. We kind of ask some of these questions as we're reading through because he sends messengers to go talk to Jesus. These local leaders, these men who had influence and sway in the community. And these men, as we see, they plead earnestly on behalf of this man's need. They're making a strong case to Jesus. They're not just relaying a message. This isn't just pure naked duty. He told us we have to say this, so we have to say it. No, these guys are personally advocating for this man. It's really from the heart. Look at their appeal in verse 5. They pled with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. Why is that? Well, first of all, it says in verse 5, He loves our nation. This man, despite the fact that he's a Gentile, despite the fact that he is a centurion in the Roman army, is sympathetic to the people and the culture and the the lives of the, the people of Israel. This is unusual. Disdain both then and now is, is common, commonly directed towards the Jews. But this man loved their nation. And it was not just a sympathetic feeling. He put his money where his mouth is. He built their synagogue. Now, it was not uncommon in this day and age for, uh, for Roman political leaders, even military officers, and, and the military was part of the government. It's all mixed together. It was not uncommon for them to invest in their local communities. Gestures of goodwill sometimes are a little more effective than always using the sword. 
And so it may have been something like that, but based on the way these elders are appealing, they understand his, his philanthropy, his effort to build their synagogue to mean a lot more than just political pragmatism. He appears to be like the man Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we meet another Gentile, another centurion, who's described as a God-fearer, someone who believes in the God of Israel, someone who had come to believe he's the only true God. This man loves their nation. He built the synagogue because he values their scriptures. He values their worship. He's bought into it. He may not be a full-blown proselyte to Judaism per se, but this man has the fear of God. So these men are appealing to Jesus. He's worthy. He loves our nation. He built our synagogue. Please come heal his servant. So Jesus goes with them. Now, this is a very brief little statement. Verse 6, short sentence, and Jesus went with them. But I want to remind you how big of a statement this is. For Luke, who's a Gentile, who's writing this gospel, and he's writing it to a man named Theophilus, whom we find his name in chapter 1. Theophilus is also a Gentile. This is incredibly important, that the first response of faith following this sermon on the plains that Jesus preached, the first exemplary response of faith comes from a Gentile. And not only that, Jesus is willing to minister to Gentiles. Jesus is going to his house. That's a big statement. It is an early fulfillment of what the old man Simeon prophesied in the temple back in Luke chapter 2, verse 30. Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation, as he looks at this infant Jesus, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Luke is eager to show throughout his gospel that salvation is not only for the Jews, it is also for the Gentiles, that the grace of God, the promises of God, extend through Christ not only to Israel, but to all who will come and believe. This is the first response of faith following the sermon, and it highlights Christ's willingness to go and minister to this man. But as they're on their way to his house, another delegation meets them. Verse 6 says, When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. I find it fascinating here that while the elders claim, Jesus, you have to heal this man, he is worthy, what does this man say about himself? He says, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. We find here an echo of what John the Baptist said. John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals. And this man said, I'm not worthy to have him come under my roof. Unlike some who approach Jesus, there is no sense of entitlement with this centurion. He's not trying to obligate Jesus. He's not negotiating with him and sort of, you know, pointing to all the good things he's done and saying that it's about time that someone does me a favor. He makes no demands that his needs be met. He says, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. This is true humility. And this is really the reason, I think, why this man didn't personally come to Jesus. This is why first he sent the elders of the Jews and then he sent his friends 
And he says in verse 7, therefore, because I'm not worthy, he says, that's why I did not presume to come to you. I didn't come to you, and I really don't even need you to come under my roof. I am not worthy of that. Although he is a man of high position, a man of great financial means, a man with a good reputation, he's loved by all the people of the city, a man who's done a lot for the city of Capernaum, he does not presume to stand before Christ. There's a lot of parallels in this section of Luke's gospel, and we'll see why later. Parallels between the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha and the ministry of Jesus. In fact, I think Luke is stitching some of these stories together on purpose to show that Jesus is the ultimate prophet who's continuing that ministry started in the Old Testament, the final prophet to come. And if you read the book of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and you see the ministries of these two prophets, you'll know that there is a story kind of like this in the Old Testament where there's a foreign military officer who comes to Jesus in need of healing. And there's also a servant involved. So some of the details are different, but there's also some parallels. You know, this Syrian military officer named Naaman comes to be healed of leprosy. But there's a contrast between this Gentile military officer and that Gentile military officer. Naaman, if you know the story, was offended that Elijah would not even come to the door, that he sent his servant to come tell him what to do. Naaman is offended that Elijah tells him to go dip in the Jordan River. It's like, we got way better rivers back home. What's the deal with this little muddy creek here in this backwater nation of Israel? And, and that man's servants had to plead with him, say, just humble yourself and do what the man says. We see a contrast here that this man is marked by radical humility. I'm not worthy, and I do not presume to stand before you. Scripture often teaches us about the necessity of humility towards God. We find it in the Proverbs, in Peter's writings, in the book of James, that God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. That if we humble ourselves before the Lord, that he will lift us up. This humility is essential to the genuine faith that, that Jesus receives and commends. Jesus commends faith in the right object, but Jesus also commends faith that is humble. And what's so exemplary about this man is his radical humility before Christ. No entitlement, no demands, not trying to obligate Jesus, but a confession of his own unworthiness. But there's a third description of the kind of faith that Jesus commends. Third, Jesus commends faith that is confident in his authority. Faith that is confident, certain of his powerful authority. Verse seven says, therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion makes an appeal to Jesus. He says, listen, you don't have to come. Just say the word. You know, Jesus heals in many different ways throughout the gospels. Sometimes he touches people, lays his hands on them. Sometimes he puts his fingers in a deaf man's ears. Sometimes he spits in the dirt and makes a muddy paste and smears it on a man's eyes. Sometimes a woman merely touches the fringe of his garment. Other times Jesus speaks a word. 
Jesus is not limited to any specific manner of healing. The power of Christ's healing is not in the method. It's not some magic trick that he's doing where he's got to stack the deck just right. The power is in the man, Christ Jesus. It is who he is, not necessarily how he works, that is the key. And the centurion understands this. Distance is no problem for the one who holds authority over all creation. The centurion, he knows how things work. He too, he says, is a man under authority. And I love how he describes this. You still see his humility. He's not a man who has authority. He's a man who's under authority. And the reason why the centurion's servants, why they ask how high when he tells them to jump, the reason for that is not even because of him. It's because of the authority of Rome that's behind him. He knows whose authority and power is behind him, and he also knows the authority and power that's behind the ministry of Jesus. He knows it's the very power of God. Unlike the Pharisees who will accuse Jesus of doing miracles by the power of Satan, he knows that Jesus is doing the very works of his Father. He knows that the power of Jesus is, in its essence, the very power of God, the God who spoke and all things came to be. The God whose word upholds the very universe. Jesus has already demonstrated the power of this spoken word. He has commanded the demons to depart. He's commanded disease to disappear. This is the power of the kingdom. It's an authority that has been given to him by his father in heaven. So as the centurion reasons, why would physical distance be any problem for a man like Jesus, who is the son of God, who has the very authority and power of God? So he says, just say the word. The opponents of Jesus demanded signs. They would say, teacher, perform a sign that we might believe in you. That's not the kind of faith that Jesus commends. The disciples saw many of Jesus' miracles, yet they still had a hard time trusting and believing in him. He often would reprove them for their little faith. They didn't always get commended for their faith. This man has only heard about Jesus. He hasn't even seen any of the miracles. Yet he is confident in Christ's absolute power and authority. And in faith, he asks Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And look at how Jesus responds in verse nine. When Jesus heard these things, when he hears his his humility, his humble confession of his unworthiness, when he hears this request to merely say the word because I know what kind of authority you have, when Jesus hears these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus marvels. Jesus is amazed. Jesus admires what he sees in this man. This word for marveling is only used two times to describe Jesus in the New Testament. There's only two times where Jesus marvels like this. The first is when he preaches in his hometown of Nazareth, and no one believes. Jesus marvels at their unbelief. He is amazed. He is shocked at and grieved by their gross unbelief and blindness in the face of what he himself is telling them. The people that knew him best rejected him, and he marveled. But the second time this word is used where Jesus marvels is right here. When Jesus sees not not a stunning kind of blind unbelief, 
but rather a stunning, humble, confident faith coming from a centurion. Jesus marvels. He marvels at the faith of this centurion, a Gentile who's only heard of him and yet believes like this. And so he stops and he turns to the crowd. Anywhere Jesus went, it always made a scene because people wanted to see what's he going to do next. So it's not just the 12. There's others that are along the way. And he, he stops and he turns to the crowd. And he says, hey, I want you guys to see this. I want you to understand this. And he uses this phrase introducing his statement. He says, I tell you. Again, sometimes we're familiar with the stories of Scripture. We read through it too quickly. But Jesus doesn't say, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He says, I'm telling you, listen to this. I want you to catch this. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. This is exemplary. This deserves commendation. This is what I am after is this kind of faith. And again, this is the high point of the story. It's the emphatic climax, that this is the kind of faith that Jesus commends, a humble confidence in the authority of Jesus Christ and his word. In fact, verse 10 is almost a little anticlimactic. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Oh yeah, by the way, the servant did get healed. That's not even the main point. Jesus commends the humble confidence in his powerful authority that he observes in this centurion's request. And the commendation of Jesus is what shines forth in this story. The faith that Jesus commends is a faith that is in him alone. It is a faith that is convinced of personal unworthiness. And it is a faith that is confident in his divine power. Listen, friends, you may not be able to build any synagogues you might not be able to personally fund uh, any major ministry efforts. You may not be able to leave a mark on this community where your name is on people's lips for many years to come. You may not be well-known. That's okay. Because God isn't impressed by what you can accomplish. You may not have well-to-do and notable friends, people that speak well of you, you may not be held in high esteem by the influencers and the leaders of our day. They may not testify to your worthiness. That's okay, because God isn't impressed by the reputation that you build for yourself here or the applause of men. Jesus commends humble confidence in his powerful authority. This faith, wherever it is found, is smiled upon by Jesus our Savior. It doesn't matter if you feel like an outsider, if you consider yourself an unlikely citizen of the kingdom. His grace extends to all who feel their need for him, all who sense their unworthiness, all who fix their eyes on him alone, all who trust in his power to save. Listen, friend, if you lack this faith, this is all that God requires of you at this moment, that you would humble yourself that you would look to Jesus, confess your unworthiness, and trust in his power to save. Believe. Believe in Jesus Christ like the centurion. If you possess this faith already, if you have trusted in Christ, then I think this is still instructive for us. Bear in mind that the faith we have in Jesus is rarely static. It's not always a constant, is it? It ebbs and flows. 
It can rise and fall. It can be weak. It can be small. It can be frail. It can be immature. That faith can at times falter, but that faith can also grow. In fact, that faith must grow. Perhaps you sense a need this morning to refocus on Jesus Christ, on the objective historical reality of who he is and what he has done and how everything that we need, everything that we believe hinges upon him. Perhaps you need to look away from yourself, to look away from other counterfeit saviors, to look away from the things of earth and fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. He alone must be the object of our faith. Perhaps what you need to do this morning is to humble yourself, to see yourself rightly, to confess with more awareness than ever before that you are unworthy, that you are poor and needy, that you've not done anything to deserve God's forgiveness or his help or his love or his mercy or his grace. And if that sounds like death to something inside of you, to confess your unworthiness. That's because it is. It is death to our pride. It is death to our ego. It is death to that part of our flesh that wants to be worthy. Because we think that if we can find ourselves worthy, it will give us a sense of joy and wholeness. But here's the amazing reality is we allow that part of us to die. Our own pride, our own sense of worthiness, our own sense of merit. It actually opens us up to receive the joy because here's where joy comes from. Not from you being worthy, but from gladly celebrating the fact that despite our unworthiness, God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, and that Jesus, God's very son, God in human flesh, has provided the way for salvation and that he offers it to us, to all of us. If we will repent of our sin and believe in him, that's all. Joy comes in the glad celebration, like we sang this morning, that we are just like dust. We're like flowers and grass. We pass away and wither so fast. We confess that the best of our righteous deeds cannot commend us to God. And they don't have to, because God chooses to love us anyway. That's where joy and freedom and hope and wholeness is found. Perhaps you need to come and confess to the Lord to realize the greater depth of your spiritual poverty. Remember how Jesus was just preaching? Just right before this, Luke chapter 6, verse 20, he lifts up his eyes on his disciples and says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Those who recognize you have nothing to offer Jesus except your need of him. Christ delights in that. I'm sure we would all say out loud that we are unworthy. If I were to ask you to raise your hand, how many, how many of you think you deserve heaven, that you deserve God's love, that you deserve salvation? I'm sure all of us would, would profess with our mouths because we know the truth that we are unworthy. But probe a little bit deeper. What do your emotions and your reactions and your attitudes reveal about the true condition of your heart? This pride of, of seeing ourselves as worthy, it is insidious and it, it seeps into the little cracks and corners of the heart. And it needs to be hunted down and exposed and repented of. Is there any sense of entitlement in you? Do you 
demand things from God? Do you feel as if he owes you? Because, well, haven't you done so much for him? And isn't that his job? Isn't he supposed to forgive people and love people and help people and meet their needs? I mean, that's what he does. Why would he not do that for me? Is any of that attitude in your mind, in your heart? Is there a lack of gratitude in you for, for all that Christ has given you? Is there a lack of awe at what God has done for you? Is grace less amazing than it used to be? Why is that? Have you forgotten your sense of unworthiness? If so, God's will for you today is that you would humble yourself before him and repent of your pride. Repent of your lofty view of self and choose to glory not in you and what you deserve and what you've accomplished, but rather choose to glory in his undeserved grace towards you. Perhaps as you consider the faith of the centurion, you recognize there is a need in your heart for a greater confidence in the power of God. Perhaps there are doubts and fears and anxieties that plague you. What do we do when we find that our, strength, that our faith needs to be strengthened? When we don't have the confidence that this man has, that Jesus only needs say the word. Well, again, consider the centurion. We can learn from him. What was the cause of his confidence? What was his experience? He had heard of Jesus. He had heard about Jesus. Listen, if you want to fight fear, if you want to defeat doubt, if you want to overcome anxiety, then you must assault your mind and your heart with the truth of Jesus Christ. You need to consider the majesty and glory of his person who he is. You need to consider the astonishing power of his works. Do you know what he has done? Have you heard about Jesus? Not just casting out demons and healing the sick. Have you heard how he walked on water and calmed the storm? Have you heard how he fed 5,000? Have you heard how he raised Lazarus to life? Even better, have you heard how he rose from the dead? Consider the astonishing power of his works. Consider the eternal truth of his promises, what Jesus has said, how he has promised to be with us, how he has promised to provide for us, how he has promised to preserve us to the end, how he has promised to raise us up and bring us home to be with him in glory. You need to hear of Jesus in the morning, opening the word to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. You need to hear of Jesus in the afternoon by preaching to yourself the truth and meditating on his word. You need to hear of Jesus in the evening as you speak of him with friends and with family. And you're in the right place today because you need to hear about Jesus on Sunday. You need to hear your brothers and sisters sing of his glory and grace. You need to hear his word preached. You need to be with the body of Christ. You need to hear about what Christ has done in their lives. The centurion had heard about Jesus, and that's why he asked for help. That's why he sent for him. Listen, Romans tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And that's true not just in evangelism, but also that's how we strengthen our faith. We need to hear the word. If you sense in yourself a need for greater confidence in Christ, to have the kind of faith that Jesus commends, 
then you must feed your faith with the truth of Scripture and ask God to deepen your confidence in Him, in His person, in His works, in His power, and His promises. Faith requires that we not only see ourselves rightly, that's humility, but also that we see Him as He truly is. That's where confidence comes from. Jesus commends humble confidence in his powerful authority. May God grant such faith where it's lacking, and may he strengthen it where it is weak, that we might become a people, a church, that is truly humble before him, gladly confessing our unworthiness, but also confident in his power to save, certain that his word proves true and eagerly expecting him to to do abundantly above and beyond all that we might ask or think. Father, as we read through this story, we're grateful that there's people in the Bible like us, people who suffer, people who face difficulty, people who are spiritually impoverished and have great need. And when they come to you with their neediness, with their emptiness, we see that you are faithful and gracious mighty to save. All these healings and deliverances that we read of in the Gospels, they prove to us that you are able to truly do what we cannot. And they illustrate for us the great work of salvation, the spiritual rescue, the spiritual healing, the spiritual deliverance that you grant to all who believe in the Gospel. Lord, may we be a people who truly are humble, I pray that you would expose and eradicate the pride, the the feeling of entitlement, the attitude that demands from you. I pray that that would be purged from our midst. And I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that we would become increasingly confident in your word and your promise because we see who Jesus really is. How could we not recognize his authority and his power? And Lord, we thank you that you so graciously wield this authority and this power on behalf of those like us who are needy and sinful and weak. We praise you and glorify you for your grace and ask that you would strengthen the faith that is present among us, all for your glory. Amen.